If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. We are picking back up in the book of Galatians um, from our, our study. We've been through chapter 1 and most of chapter 2, and today we will finish up chapter 2. But while you're turning there, let's do a, a quick refresh. It's been a while. It was December 11th that we were last in the book of Galatians, and so you may have forgotten some things, but you'll remember that Paul is writing to these churches that are in Galatia. He had visited them on his first missionary journey. He'd gone up through this area, and uh, he and Barnabas had been there. They'd they'd combated some different issues, but they'd seen people come to Christ, and now he's writing to the churches that are there. And it would seem that the reason he's writing right now is that there have been some Jewish Christians that have risen up. Some people would call them Judaizers. They've begun to undercut Paul's message. They've begun to say that um, Paul, this this message of salvation by grace alone, it's, you're forsaking the law, and we need to keep the law, especially things like circumcision and um, and dietary laws. You have to keep those things if you're going to be a good follower of Jesus. You need to keep the law and believe in Jesus. And he's saying that's not the message. The message is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so he's combating this. Part of their tactic was to undercut Paul's authority, to say he's not a real apostle. Um, and so we saw in chapter 1 how Paul, um, if you look back at, at verse 11, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And this big burden has been to show that the gospel is divine, not human in origin, that this is something that he received from God and is now giving to the people, that he is a true apostle. So he goes on and he, remember, he's trying to distance himself from Jerusalem. He says, I was there three years after I was converted. I just met uh, with with Peter and I, I met James briefly. And then it wasn't until 14 years after my conversion, that I finally ended up in Jerusalem. And when I was there, Barnabas and I were talking to the leaders, to to, um, to Peter and to James and to John, and we were talking about the gospel, and there were people that were coming in, and they said, you have to be circumcised, and you guys aren't teaching the law like you should to these new converts. And all of them come together. You remember Paul and Barnabas joined together with, with Peter and James and John, and they say, no, we don't have to keep the law. Jesus has freed us from the law. We're saved by grace alone, not by obedience and doing the works of the law. And so that issue is settled. Of course, we were surprised, you'll remember, in, in verse 11, where we see, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. There's this issue that arises. Let's actually read there. We're going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. We looked mostly at verses 11 through 14 the last time, and we'll finish out this chapter, but 11 through 14 will give us the context for the remainder of this um, of this chapter. So beginning in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, we read, But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, 
being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you thought about this, it will never be the year 2011 again. It's, it's over. However you felt about it, good or bad, it is dead and gone. And the new year has come. 2012 is here. It's full of new life. Death and life, the the old and the new, the former and the the fresh, if you will. Paul speaks in these kinds of terms in Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. He speaks about himself and how he relates to the law, how he relates to Christ and to the grace of God. And as he uses this language of life and death, he reminds Peter and the Galatians, because this is who he's speaking to, he reminds them and, and us of this. To be a Christian, this is just a simple truth, but to be a Christian is to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's the simple truth that I want us to just muse on this morning. We're going to kind of circle around this text and think about that truth. To be a Christian is to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection. I don't know how that statement strikes you. Maybe it feels old. It feels so 2011. You know, It's something that you've heard so many times. That, that maybe maybe I, it's not said that exact way, but it just it kind of feels lifeless. It feels it feels old. And you're here today. Maybe you're looking for something new and fresh. You know, this is new the new year. Come on, it's 2012. We need some sort of new truth, something that's going to help you grow. That's going to help you keep all those New Year's resolutions that you've made. That's going to make 2012 so much better than than 2011. Well, the reality is that here in the new year, we don't need a new truth. Maybe we just need to see this basic truth with new, fresh eyes here on the first day of the year. Because the same truth that has brought us through past years is the truth that will give us the strength to walk through this upcoming year. This, it's the, the, the truth that will sustain us for all eternity. It's the truth that to be a Christian is to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection. This is a familiar passage, um, Galatians 2.20. Many of you have probably memorized this this verse. Um, I, this is one that I remember memorizing as a young child. Um, this was a big one. You know, they would send the verse. We had three by five verse cards when I was a, a kid, and we'd take them home. And there were some. They were nice. You'd see it was like two or 
three lines. And when the Galatians 220 card came out, man, it filled the whole 3x5 card. And that was a big accomplishment um, to, to have that one memorized when you came to, to church that Sunday. What's interesting about verses like this is sometimes we know that verse, but we don't know the context. So it's just kind of, we know Galatians 2.20, but what's going on around Galatians 2.20? What, what do verses uh, 15 through 19 and then verse 21, what, what do they mean and how do they fit in with Galatians 2.20? And I'll be honest, I, I struggle to really fully understand what's what's the interaction with these verses. So one way that I was trying to understand it is to just, is to rewrite these verses this is not inspired. This is not a translation. <laughs> this is, I didn't go back to the Greek, but just in trying to understand what this passage means to, to rewrite it. So I, just to start us off, I want to, we read it in the New American Standard, which is a much better translation than what I'm going to give you. But as an attempt to set the groundwork, lay the groundwork for us understanding this passage, I want to read to you maybe a summary. Beginning in verse 15, you can kind of follow along with verse 15 if you want, and we'll just walk through the verses. But Paul is talking to Peter and he says, Peter and, and all of you other Galatians who are ethnically Jewish for that matter, uh, those are, we were born as Jews. And the laws have always been a part of our lives. Unlike the Gentiles who were born violating God's law, the Gentile sinners. However, we know and we agree that a person is not made right before God by keeping the law, but by trusting in Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by keeping the law. Because no one, absolutely no one, can be justified, made righteous before God by doing the works of the law. But there are those who are objecting to this message. This is verse 17. There are those who are objecting to this message of salvation by faith in Christ alone, apart from the law, saying that in seeking to be justified in Christ alone, we have been found to be sinners. That the freedom from the law that we are promoting, in fact, causes us to become breakers of the law, just like the Gentiles. So, if that is the message we are preaching, then does that message make Christ a minister of sin, a cause for us sinning? What is Paul's response? May it never be. Absolutely not. No way. He says, listen, I tore down the ladder of the law as a means of climbing my way up to God. And if I rebuild that ladder, all I'm doing is proving that I am a transgressor. My inability to keep the law simply provides evidence that I am a law breaker. I have died to the law through the law because only by dying to the law can I now live to and for God. The law said that the penalty for my sin is death and i have died i have been crucified and my crucifixion happened when christ was crucified i am dead of course i am also still alive but that life is not me living but christ living in me the life i walk around living in this body i live by faith by trust in the son of god jesus who loved me personally and gave up his life as an offering for me. If you want to seek righteousness and justification and right standing before God through obedience to the law, you are choosing to nullify the grace of God. And that is something that I refuse to do. If righteousness comes through the law, then the death of Jesus was unnecessary. You can't have it both ways. Either you are justified and sanctified by faith in Christ, or you need to keep the law. 
that's a, a barrage of, of information, but it helped me to put things in order. Maybe that, that that's a, a big overview of, of those verses, verses 15 through 21. But let's look at verse 17 in particular and kind of walk through this. Verse 17 is, is a question. It says, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. What is that question? I, I mulled over that for a long time, trying to say, what is the what is the question that's being asked? What seems to be happening is that this was an objection that was brought to Paul against this message of being saved by faith alone and not by keeping the law. And what people are saying is that this the message of justification by faith in Christ, apart from the works of the law, causes you to sin by violating the law. And by doing that, you're making Christ an agent of your sin. So he's saying that people are coming and they're saying, you're saying we're justified by faith in Christ, but and that we don't have to keep the law. When you do that, then you make us breakers of the law, and you're causing Jesus and this supposed freedom in him to be an agent for us sinning more. Does that make sense? It might help if you look back, he says in verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. What kind of sinning is he talking about? Well, he's talking about breaking of the laws, about not being circumcised, about partaking of certain foods. And he's saying the the people are are coming at him in opposition and saying, Paul, you're saying you're justified by faith and you don't have to keep the works, do the works of the law. But if you say that, then you're causing people to break the law and you're making Jesus an agent for people sinning. Jesus is causing people to sin because you're preaching this message. It's it's a tough question because we're, we just don't think that way necessarily. We don't come up with, with those kind of questions. But here's here's Paul's response. He says, is that happening? Is Jesus becoming someone that causes us to sin? May it never be. Definitely not. No way. Uh, he says, then he responds and he says, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. His point is, the law proves that I'm a sinner. The law is an agent for me sinning, not Jesus. I, I read this illustration in the sermon by um, by John Piper, and it was so good. He said, he talked about the law, and the law was intended to be a kind of railroad track. So if you can imagine a railroad track with with the um, with the tracks going down and the railroad ties and all the, the pegs holding everything down in this long railroad track. And it's intended to be this, this guide to show us how God has called us to live, how to find joy in Christ and how to please God in the way that we walk as, as his followers. And so this is something that we're to, to walk along. And what the Judaizers did, the, what, what people who say we need to keep the law did is they took this railroad track, if you will, and they pulled it up off the ground and they made it a ladder. And they said, we're going to lean this up against heaven. And now the way to get heaven is not to, is, is, is to climb the ladder of the law, is to, to climb all of these rungs. And to, that's how we um, get to God. The law is good. The Ten Commandments are good. I think we should keep them. But they are not a ladder for reaching God. And the problem with the Judaizers is that they had made the law a ladder. And if it's a ladder, then you need every step. Have you ever tried to climb a ladder where there's a step missing? You can't do it. It's, it's too big of a, of a step. You have to have all of the rungs. And so the Judaizers are saying, we need to keep all of this. You can't remove anything. 
But but if it's a, if it's a track, if it's if it's a guide, then then these pieces are are not necessary for for us to get to God. It's it's this it's the purpose is to guide us in how we're supposed to walk with Christ. So he says that the law, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He says I, I've pulled down the law. Paul says I have been there. I've tried to climb that ladder all my life, and all it did was show that I couldn't do it. All it did was get me to a certain rung on the ladder, and I realized that there were a thousand more rungs that I'm supposed to climb, and I can't get past this one because I keep failing on this point. The law proves that I'm a sinner. It doesn't help me get to God. It just shows me that there's no way that I can get to God on my own. That's what the law does. Jesus isn't an agent for me sinning. The law is. It proves that I am a sinner. So he says, if you think that, that what I'm preaching causes Jesus to become someone who, who causes me to sin, it's, it's not true. Because the law does that. It shows that I'm a sinner. The next thing he says is, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He says, I am dead to the law. The, the point is, he's saying, you guys are Gentile. You're like the Gentile sinners because you're breaking the law. And Paul says, you're right, but I'm dead to the law. I don't have to keep those things anymore because I have been justified by faith in Christ, not by keeping the works of the law. And so if you want to call me a sinner because I don't tell people to get circumcised or because I I don't obey the the Jewish ceremonial laws or because I don't do these non-moral things that you are saying I need to do to get to God, if you're saying that I'm a sinner because of that, then fine. That's what I am. But I'm dead to the law. The law has no, my relationship with the law has been totally transformed because of what Jesus has done. Then he gets into this verse verse 20, which is kind of the, the crux of the matter. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's something in this in this discussion that Paul is having, and as he goes on in the book, there's he's talking about union with with Christ, that we are united with Christ. As we talk about justification, being made righteous before God, where we are in a state of sinning, we are rebels against God's law, and God is rightly His wrath is on us because of our sin. Then Jesus comes in and becomes the substitute and takes our wrath, steps into our place and fulfills the, he dies in our place. He takes our punishment. And not only that, but he fulfills the law. He fulfills all righteousness. He does everything that we could not do. And so by faith in Christ, we are made right before God. We no longer have the sentence of death on us and we are seen in Christ in his righteousness. That's kind of a, a legal standing. You've all probably heard that, that illustration of someone coming before the court and the judge says, you are guilty and the penalty is death and someone has to pay the penalty. And the illustration is that the judge then takes his robes off and comes down and says, and I will take the penalty for you. I did not commit the wrong, but I will die in your place. So there's this legal standing, this objective standing before God that we are now just and we are righteous. I want to preach that till the day I die because I think that is our that is our only hope. 
for salvation. If I have to bear the weight of my sin, if I have to try to do good works to get back to God, if I have to try to climb that ladder, then I have no hope. But I think what's unique about this passage is that it's, it's, it's preaching this objective truth, but it's also preaching something that you would say is, is subjective, that we would say is a mystery or is, or is mystical, which I don't really want to use that word too readily, but at the same time, there, there is something unique and amazing that is happening in this verse, that we are united with Jesus in his death and in his life. Do, do you see this? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. What he's saying is that when Jesus died, I died with him. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So Christ is, is living and, and inside me. And the life that I am now living, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So there's this objective way of understanding that, but there's also this mysterious strength. It's, it's a spiritual understanding that we have died with Christ. Have you ever thought about that? That you were crucified when Jesus was crucified. That your old self, that you're that you enslaved to sin died with Jesus. In some amazing, unique way, you were crucified with Christ. Not only that, but you are now alive through his resurrection. You're alive in Christ, and Christ lives in you. What does that even mean, right? Christ lives in you. The, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is in us, and we now have Christ living in us, and he is our life. He causes us to be able to walk along this path of the law and to do what he has called us to do. So this, this mystery is, is here, and that, that is what we are to, to walk and to live. And the reason that Paul was, was so firm in his understanding is because he knew that when Jesus died, he died. And he knew that his life was hidden in Christ, that the only reason he was alive was because Jesus had risen from the dead and given him new life. And he now lives by faith. What's going to happen later on in chapter 3 is Paul's going to say, you were saved, you say that you're coming to Christ by faith, but now you want to be perfected by doing good works. You can't have it both ways. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God. I am saved by faith and I walk by faith every day of my life because in and of myself I have no hope. So it's this mysterious thing. But then look look at how personal Paul gets here. He says, The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. There is a sense in which we, we would say Christ died for us, for, for us as believers. And I think we need to emphasize that in, in a culture that, that often becomes so self-absorbed and we say everything is about, about me and about you know, everything is done for me personally. I think we need to understand the corporate nature that, that we are saved into a family, that we are saved as a body of believers, and we're not saved as individuals necessarily. But there is an emphasis here where he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He doesn't say us. He's talking to Peter and he's talking to other believers, but he says that Jesus loves me. That when he went to the cross, he went because he loves me. And he gave himself up for me. Jesus gave up his life for you. 
Jesus loves you. But we can say that. We can say that with, with confidence and, and understand that, that it is true. We can sing a song like Jesus loves me. And it's not just something that is true for a child. God doesn't just love children. It's not just a children's song. We can say Jesus loves me. And Jesus died for me, that he gave himself up for me. Again, we need to balance that with that corporate understanding and understand that that there is a beauty to the fact that Jesus has died for us. And yet there's also this wonderful thing to say that Jesus loves you. Jesus gave himself up for you. Paul then goes on and he says, I I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He describes this, the beauty in verse 20 of what Christ has done, that we have died with him, that we've been raised with him, that, that Jesus loves us, that he gave himself up for us. And he says, if you want to go back to the law, that's fine, but you're throwing all of that away. And Jesus coming to earth, loving us and dying for us, it was worth nothing. It's, it's, it was a waste. It was unnecessary. It was needless. And in doing that, in seeking to, to climb the ladder to make God happy with you, you nullify the grace of God. In saying, I'm saved by faith, but I'm, I grow in Christ's likeness by my good works, you're saying, you're nullifying the grace of God, and you are saying that Christ died for no reason. The only hope we have is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The only hope that we have as followers of Jesus is that we have been united to Christ in his death and his resurrection. We have no hope if we say that we're going to go back and try to find righteousness through obedience to the law. This this thought about union with Christ, that we are united with him in his death and his resurrection, that, that we have died with him, that we have been raised to new life with him, that that we walk with him, that that when God looks at us, he sees that we have died the death that we were supposed to die because we died when Christ died. That when when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ because we live in the righteousness of Christ. We are united to Christ. This is the Christian faith. This is our walk. This is who we are. You are united to Christ. Even as I think about the ordinances, as, the, as we think about the Lord's Supper, and, and even baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is a, is a visible display of your union with Christ. When you, have been, you are buried in the likeness of Jesus' death, and you're raised in the likeness of his resurrection. That we have died with Jesus, we are buried underneath the water, and we are raised to new life. It's what we're trying to do in baptism. Baptism does not wash away any sin. It is not necessary for salvation. But what we're trying to do is say, this is my identity now. I, I died. When, when Jesus died by faith, now I believe in that and, and I have died. And when Jesus was raised up to new life, I've been given new life. And the life that I'm now living, I'm not living on my own. Christ is living in and through me. And I want to show that. Baptism is so Beautiful because it's it's this wonderful picture of something that we can hardly wrap our minds around, that we have died with Christ and we've been raised up. And so Jesus says, I, he says, go and make disciples and baptize them. Why? Because we want to show what has happened. 
Uh, we want to show the world that you are now dead, that you died when I died, and you are raised up to new life, and now you live, and you are a completely different person. You're walking with me, and I am living in you. Baptism is a beautiful thing. If you've never been baptized, I, I want to say this is what Christ has called us to do. He says, go and make disciples baptizing them. It's right there in the Great Commission. It's something that we are called to do, to be baptized. That it's this first step of obedience where we show that we have come to faith in Christ. And to be honest, that is why we have it as a as a requirement for, for taking the Lord's Supper. Because it is this first step of, of obedience where we show that we really believe this, that we have died with Christ and we've been raised to new life. Again, baptism is not necessary for salvation, but it is what we would call the, the the first the first step towards saying, "I believe in Jesus. I have put my faith in Him alone, and I have died to myself, and I am raised to new life. And so now I am a part of this community of believers." And then, what is the Lord's Supper? But another example of trying to understand our union with Christ, that we eat the bread and we drink the cup, and we show that that Christ is our life. That we have no life, we have no hope apart from the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I, I, I use that term mystery. There, there, there really is nothing mystical about the Lord's Supper. It's bread and it's juice. But it shows us this amazing mystery that happens when we come to faith in Christ. That we have died. And we are raised to new life. That the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. That Jesus is now living as the bread of life and living inside us causing us to walk in his ways. So the Christian life is the life of saying, I have died with Christ, and I am raised to walk in him. He is living through me. It's this union with Christ. Alistair Begg summed up Galatians 2.20. If you never listened to Alistair Begg, you should, he's a great pastor to listen to. Um, he's got an accent, which helps pay attention, right? Um, but he said this in summarizing Galatians 2.20. He says, He gave his life for me that he might take my life from me to live his life through me. He gave his life for me that he might take my life from me to live his life through me. I think that is that is the Christian life. That is what we're called to do. Whatever New Year's resolutions you've made, whatever hopes you have for 2012, they are found in walking with Christ, living, allowing his life to live out of you, to realize that you have died to sin, to realize that Christ is living in you, to say that Jesus gave his life for you so that he could take your life, so that he could kill your old life on the cross. And so now he can use you and live his life through you. You can't do it on your own. Whatever's on that list of things that you're trying to do. Realize that if you've turned it into a ladder to make people or to make God happy with you, tear that ladder down and kill your old self because you cannot do it on your own, but allow Christ's life to live in and through you. That is where our hope is. Our hope is in our union with Christ. So this morning, again, just a beautiful thing. Whenever we practice the Lord's Supper, but even more poignant as we begin this year to say our life is in Christ, that we have died with Christ, that when his body was broken, our old sin nature was broken. By faith, we believe that. 
and that when his blood was spilt, it was spilt for us. Jesus loves you. He gave himself up for you so that you might live in him, so that he might live through you.